Welcome to Sierra Week Conversations, a new video and podcast series bringing you insights with impact into energy, economics, and a changing world in the COVID-19 era. I'm your host, Dan Jurgen. Today, we're very pleased to be talking with Andy Jassy, who is the CEO of Amazon Web Services, otherwise known as the Amazon Cloud, which he started in 2003. And we're going to be talking about how the cloud has changed, how business operates, how the world operates, its role in the COVID-19 crisis, and the impact the cloud is likely to have in the future. Uh, Andy, welcome. Very glad to have you back. And to continue a Sierra conversation uh, here, we couldn't do it in uh, Houston this year, so very glad to be able to do it virtually. It's great to be here, and I appreciate you having me. And uh, I, I miss being able to do it in person, but it's great to be able to do it virtually. Great. Well, thank you. Well, let me just start with an obvious question. What was the cloud called before it was the cloud? Well, when we launched uh, AWS, we called it Amazon Web Services. And that's that's what we were calling the space initially, which was really to uh, allow people to use um, application programming interfaces or APIs to be able to have um, technology infrastructure that they can comprise their applications with. If you think about, you know, any any technology application you use, it always needs compute or a server. It almost always needs storage, almost always needs a database. And in the old world, the way this worked was you would have to buy um, hardware. You'd have to um, get a data center to put that hardware in and to run it. And then you'd have to buy or build all the software yourself. And, it, you know, all of that was very capital intensive and, and very time consuming for development teams. And what um, AWS and the cloud allows you to do is you get to consume the infrastructure software, the hardware and the data center services as a service itself through an API. And because you're running it in these cloud providers, data centers, and you're connecting with it through an API, it feels like that data and all that infrastructure is, is in the cloud. And that's, you know, eventually we call it AWS, but our, our second service, which is, um, you know, really broadly used our Elastic Compute Cloud or EC2, um, when we call it Elastic Compute Cloud, people seem to like that term cloud and it's stuck and, and the space became oh, cloud. So that's, where the, so that's where the term cloud came from. I think so. I mean, I, I think people, you know, it feels like the data and all the infrastructure operations are in the cloud because they're happening through an API call and not in your own data center and somebody else's. But I think that notion coupled with the fact that we had a service called Elastic Compute Cloud that was one of the very early um, movers and and uh, and services that people started to use the cloud for were, were what you know drove. So, so Amazon is of course known for uh, innovation and rapid innovation, and I, as I understand, this grew out of your obs- of your own experience and what you were doing and realizing that there was a wider commercial use. Yeah, well, you know, I think that if you know, Amazon, by most people's standards in the 90s and early 2000s, was a company that innovated at a very rapid clip. And yet at the time, we, you know, I'll call it around the time 2001, 2002, we were very frustrated with the speed with which we were innovating. It felt like it was taking so long. And when you would talk to product development teams and ask them why it took so long, and I was, at the time we were thinking about this, I was in this unusual job working for Jeff Bezos um, as what we call his shadow, which was really like a chief of staff role. And when we would go talk with people, they would say, look, I think it's great that you guys think this 
product, you know, and this service should take two to three months end to end to build, but we're spending two to three months just on the storage piece or just on the compute piece or just on the database piece and nothing we're building scales beyond our own project. And all of my peers are doing the same thing. And so this, you know, in retrospect, this was probably fairly obvious, but at the time it was a real aha to us that people internally had this high thirst for reliable, scalable, cost-effective infrastructure services. And we also asked people, we said, well, how much of your time when you're building these features or capabilities is spent on what really differentiates the capability versus that undifferentiated heavy lifting of the infrastructure? And we were stunned to hear that people spent about 80% of their time on that undifferentiated heavy lifting. And so, you know, that was a real realization to us that um, if, if you built reliable, scalable, cost-effective infrastructure services, it would allow Amazon to innovate at a much faster clip than we were before. And we thought about Amazon, which is a very strong technology company. And if we had that issue, we figured a lot of other companies probably had that same issue. And so we realized that there might be something to externalize that. And that's really how we started off on the journey of AWS. Right. And of course, today it's a uh as a business within Amazon, I think the latest public numbers, it's running at about $40 billion a year. So, um, you know, when you started, you didn't quite maybe see the scale. Kind of how has it evolved over time, the scale and the, and the nature of the cloud? Yeah, I think that any of us who've been involved in AWS since the start um, would have um, gladly taken where we are in a nanosecond. Um, you know, when we were thinking about it way back in 2003, it was, you know, we've learned this over the years at Amazon. It's very difficult to predict how big a, a new business idea is going to become, especially when you're really changing the way that consumers or customers are going to interact with the type of technology like we were with the cloud. But it's a, you know, today, 14 years into having the um, services in market, uh, it's about a $41 billion revenue run rate business. It's growing a little bit more than 30% year over year. And it's uh, it has millions of active customers. We consider an active customer a non-Amazon entity that's used our platform in the last 30 days. And it really um, spans the gamut in terms of customers. You know, in the first half dozen years or so of AWS, uh, you know, you mostly saw startups using the platform. And, and most of the successful technology startups of the last 14 years have built themselves completely from scratch on top of AWS. And these are companies like Pinterest and uh, Airbnb and Slack and Peloton and Stripe and Robinhood. But what's happened over the last um, seven or eight years, but particularly over the last five, is that the enterprise and the public sector have really started to adopt AWS in the cloud in a very pervasive way. And you see it in every imaginable vertical business segment. In in the energy sector, you know, you see Shell and BP and Hess and Halliburton. Um, IHS Market just um, uh, right. announced an agreement with AWS to, where they're closing down a number of the data centers to move their workloads to AWS. Yeah, I think you're pretty much described an incredible scale. Maybe just to build on that, how is it changing the economy and the nature of, of work? Well, it really, um, it, it changes what's possible um, with companies. And, you know, I think there are a few reasons why people 
um, have moved to the cloud so quickly, <laughs> even though, you know, we keep reminding ourselves that, you know, the, the business is a reasonable size business at this point with a $41 billion revenue run rate. But I think we're just at the early stages of the meat of enterprise and public sector adoption. But the reason that people are moving so fast is almost always cost is the conversation starter. Uh, if you can turn capital expense into a variable expense, usually that's attractive to people. And the cloud, you don't have to lay out all that capital for the data centers and the hardware. You get to just use the infrastructure as you need it. Uh, you know, and then that variable expense is a lower expense than what most companies can do on their own because we have such giant scale that we pass on to customers in the form of lower prices, where we've lowered our prices on almost 80 different occasions in the last 10 years, um, that, you know, that changes what you can do on the variable expense. And then you get real elasticity where anyone who needs to provision infrastructure knows that you have to guess ahead of time how much you need. And if you guess too little, you end up having an outage if it turns out that you need more. So nobody guesses too little. Everybody provisions for the peak. And there's a reason they call it the peak. You rarely sit at the peak. And so in, in the cloud, you don't have to guess. You provision what you need. If it turns out you need more, you seamlessly scale up. And if it turns out you hit a peak, you just give it back to us and stop paying for it. So cost is always the conversation starter. But the number one reason that people have adopted the cloud and the way it's most changed a lot of businesses is just the agility and speed with which you can innovate and change your own customer experience. You can spin up thousands of servers in minutes, and then because we have about 200 services that you can use in any combination you want, you can get from an idea to implementation of several orders of magnitude faster. So it's just a very different world with respect to how fast you can innovate. So you, before we started, you mentioned that, of course, you had been working at home like so many others and people who'll be many people who'll be watching this. Um, how has the the cloud figured in, in work in during this era of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic and making it possible for people to work at home. Yeah, I think that if, if you, I mean, we're going through something that's totally unprecedented and hopefully we'll never go through again as a society. And I think uh, one of the most important things in this crisis has been trying to help people function from where they've had to operate at home. And, you see it on both the consumer and the business side and the, and the consumer side, of course, in our retail business, we, um, you know, with so many physical stores being closed, uh, we, we really needed to, to do everything we could to enable people to have the right access to PPE and, and to food and to items. And, you know, we, we've had um, it's been a very challenging uh, um, uh opportunity over the last number of months in trying to make sure that people had what they needed. But I think the team has done a really great job. And I think the same thing has been true on the, uh, on the, the business side with AWS and trying to enable companies to be able to operate from home. And you, you kind of have seen, you know, all kinds of different scenarios. I mean, there are certain industries during the COVID crisis who have really um, just sub substantially surged relative to where they were before. So if you think about, Gaming. Um, if you have a kid, you know, I have a, a 16 year old son who's playing Fortnite every night till one in the morning. Um, you know, really? no, no parental intervention there. Well, um, attempted parental intervention, but uh, not necessarily successful. Um, you know, the, the, the parental intervention needs to end at a certain point to go to sleep themselves. But, <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, if, if you have um, kids who play video games, you know, things like Fortnite and Epic and Sony PlayStation run in AWS or 
or, you know, if you look at entertainment, Netflix and Disney Plus and Hulu and Prime Video all run in AWS, or if you have to do e-learning, uh, Blackboard and Canvas and, um, you know, video conferencing, Zoom, you know, uh, predominantly runs in AWS. So there are certain industries where we've seen these um, crazy surges because people have had to operate from home. But it's also true that just functioning as a normal company, um, those that actually were built on top of the cloud and were able to leverage it, I think, have been at a significant advantage relative to those that, that aren't. Because, again, you could just seamlessly scale up, as we talked about earlier, as you need it and as you have a surge of people at home. But you also can use services, whether it's video conferencing, you know, with, with Zoom or with, you know, we have a service called Chime as well, or whether um, you're going to use, you know, you want to use virtual desktops in the cloud through a service we have called Workspaces, or we had a number of large companies who overnight had to have their customer service agents work from home where they spun up our, our call center service connect and we're able to get thousands of agents up from, you know, uh, really from, from a standing start. And so I think the cloud has helped people be able to, um, to function much more effectively having to work from home and having to do it very quick. Well, I want to ask you about, uh, some examples and we'll get in a couple of minutes to the energy business and the role of, uh, AWS and that, but I want to ask you about one specific company that's been talked about publicly. Right now, there's probably no higher priority than a vaccine, and Moderna, which is one of the companies that's re- is that's on the warp speed uh, grant from the U.S. government to develop a vaccine, their CEO has talked in public about uh, what Amazon Web Services has enabled it to do, and maybe you might say a little bit of that in terms of yeah. What it means in terms of time saved. Well, it's it's pretty it's a pretty interesting and canonical example of how the cloud can completely change your possibilities and what you can do for customers. And so Moderna built really a, a digital manufacturing platform on top of AWS. Um, and they um, they were able to use things like EC2, which is our compute service, and S3, and which is our storage service, and Redshift, which is our data warehouse service. Um, and then they use our machine learning to build a number of very deep neural networks that allowed them to kind of be able to predict structures of, of, of different um, strains of what they were trying to solve. And they were working, of course, on mRNA and they were trying to build a vaccine uh, for SARS-CoV-2. Um, and they were able, by using machine learning, predict these structures and predict what they would what they would have in various simulations. They were able to build a vaccine in 63 days in what normally takes 20 months. And so under any circumstances, that would be remarkable. But if you especially think about the environment in which we live today, it's very important. And so and so it was the capabilities of, of the cloud, of your cloud that enabled them to almost abolish time, uh, traditional time. Yeah, they, they didn't have to, they didn't have to buy the hardware. They didn't need the data center. They didn't have to build the infrastructure software. They just used our compute and our storage and our data warehouse. And then, um, our machine learning, um, capabilities to scale up and scale down as they needed to, to really in, in really rapid fire be able to build something much faster than they otherwise would. I mean, 63 days versus 20 months is, is a total game changer. It, it, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, they, it's, it's incredible, and it's an incredible example of what's possible. And, of course, so important to every single person watching this, whether their vaccine works or somebody else's works, yeah. to the energy industry and how 
you see the cloud enabling companies to innovate and change their business practices uh, within within the energy business? If you think about one of the biggest benefits of the cloud, it's the ability to move quickly and to and to innovate on behalf of your customers quickly. But when you have data as most enterprises do that live all over the place and all these different silos, it's incredibly difficult to actually do much with that data or to do analytics on that data. And so, you know, I think that a good example of, of, you know, and typically what you want to do is you want to take that data and consolidate it in one place on what people often call a data lake. And, you know, the vast majority of companies build these data lakes on our object storage service called S3, where we have, you know, tens of thousands of these data lakes on there. So they can then run the analytical uh, tools off of this one place where the data is and set the right permissions, et cetera. And so, you know, we, um, we started working with, with Shell on um, the, their subsurface data universe, uh, um, uh, you, know, you know, which they call their OSDU. And what they were really trying to build was just a big repository that had their seismic to completion uh, workflows there. And what they really wanted to do was they wanted to have this one place where they could run lots of analytics and, and kind of almost endless simulations and, you know, data scientists had all types of ways they wanted to use this data. And so we built this with them and then, you know, they appropriately thought about it and said, well, we want to actually democratize this data set so that lots of other companies can do the same type of exploration. And, and as importantly, we'll get a number of ISVs and systems integrators who will build to enable us to do more in the analytics and then what we can do with this data. And so they, they really, um, opened this up and, and made it, you know, they actually donated their code and they, um, uh, they built this uh, OSDU, and so that now you have uh, at least uh, eight energy companies using it, about um, 45 ISVs, about 35 SIs. It's just totally change access to that data and what you can find from it and what you can do and how you can save money and, and time and energy in, in the explorations process. Or you, you can look at um, Woodside, which has um, gas plants really all over the world. And uh, they, were really tr- they, they were trying to um, innovate on the traditional way that you ran these and you did maintenance and you operated them. And uh, so they went about building, um, really using machine learning and AI to build an intelligent asset that tried to fuse together um, uh, all of this historical data um, and how the plants were used and how they were operated, about 200 different data sources. Um, and then along with um, fusing that data with um, thousands of real-time sensors or IoT sensors on their various assets. And then what they did was they used multi-LIDAR um, from cameras that they had in their facilities to really build a, a, um, a physical picture or video of how their plants were operating at any one time. And, uh, and then when they saw there was a problem, they used robots to do the troubleshooting. And so if you think about it, you know, what they're able to do now is they're, you know, they have all this historical data. They've built models to analyze um, and predict what's going to happen based on the historical data. They have real-time inputs. They have a visual representation of what's happening in their plants. And then they're able to run 
all these simulations on different scenarios such that now what they're able to do is they're able to predict when there might be a failure or a maintenance issue up to a week before it actually happens. And, you know, everybody that does anything in the industrial space knows it's much less expensive if you catch the issue before it actually breaks. And so those are, to me, two good examples of totally changing what's possible, you know, you know inside your company with data or in your plant operations. So really kind of three main outcomes. One is in terms of speed. One is in terms of cost. And one is in terms of operations. That and come safety, from. too. And safety, that's right, which for the energy industry is a absolute top priority. Yeah. Do you ever find, um, you know, you describe some of the, you know, the companies that are sending things, streaming things, at Airbnb, et cetera. But now you're working with really big established companies that obviously worry a lot about safety. Do you ever find the companies are too big to be able to uh, to to be able to move this fast? I think that there are a number of companies who sometimes believe they are too big and have too much established process to be able to move fast. But frankly, I don't believe that. I I believe that people believe that. But, you know, I think that companies and individuals have a funny way of changing and adapting when their survival is at stake. So we know people can do it. And I think that one of the least understood parts of business, in my opinion, is that people don't always think about how speed disproportionately matters at every stage of business. Unless you don't have competition, it matters whether you're an early stage business, whether you're a mid-stage business, and especially matters when you're a larger business and you have a lot of competitors, especially as a lot of competitors are able to use the cloud. And so, you know, I think that um, it, it is a intentional decision that leaders can make, that they are going to organize and change how they operate so that they can move faster. And, you know, we have a lot of ways that we do it inside of Amazon, and it's not by any means the only way to do it. But there's a few things that we do that I think, you know, others may be able to use in their own ways that might be helpful. And I, I think there are a few ways that we think about moving fast. You know, the first is who you hire. If you hire people who are content moving slow and operating at an incumbent pace, you will move slow. Whereas, you know, we overly index and in who we hire on builders. And we think about builders as those who, who like to invent, but also those who look at a customer experience and try to figure out what's wrong with it and then have this hunger to change that and to reinvent that. So the first is that we hire builders. And then we try to organize them in as small and separable and autonomous teams as we can so that they own their own destiny. And as we were talking about earlier, in teams sometimes feeling like victims because they don't have the freedom to move fast, if teams own all the resources, there's no more finger pointing between engineering and product management and operations. They're all in the same team and they're all owning it together. They, they take charge of their own destiny. And so we try to hire builders organize them in separable teams that own their own destiny. And then we try and give them the same building blocks that all of our AWS external customers have, which are the AWS services. And I think one of the least um, publicized parts of Amazon's growth the last 10 years has just been the incredible pace with which our consumer businesses have grown. And they will tell you that a big part of that is being able to use AWS. And I think there are two other things that are useful. I think of big companies, as they get bigger, for whatever reason, they start to, to walk into meetings where they're going to talk about new ideas, looking to find ways to say no. And I don't think it's because they are ill-intended. I just think you get more conservative and it seems harder to manage. 
And I would say at Amazon, all the senior leaders will tell you their very favorite meetings are the ones about new, new initiatives. And we don't say yes to everything, but we are very actively spending our time in those meetings trying to find ways to get to yes. We say yes to a lot more than others. And I think the last piece is if you want to invent and you want people to, to take chances and work on new initiatives, you have to be able to tolerate failure. And none of us like failure. And in Amazon, we have a lot of very achievement-oriented type A, pe- type A people who hate failure. But if you don't allow people to take chances and have a, an opportunity, if it doesn't work out, to be able to move on to something great, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. None of the good people will work on the new things because it'll be too risky. And You know, you're a lot bigger company than you joined Amazon, I think, in 1997. Uh, in those 23 years, it's become a lot bigger company. Uh, is it harder to, you know, maintain those values and those uh, sort of uh, directions when you get to be this big and this prominent? Well, I think that arguably the most important part of our being able to retain our culture as we have grown in, in the number of people on the locations we are and the types of businesses we're pursuing has been our, our leadership principles. And we have these 14 leadership principles that we're um, very committed to inside the company that drive everything. They drive our behavior. They drive how we um, assess people. They drive how we promote people. We call each other out on it. Um, you know, if we feel like somebody is, is um, not living up to those leadership principles, it's always one of the, you know, the things that people feel worst about is if someone tells them that they're not living up to one of those principles. But I think that that has been the most important factor in our being able to retain the culture, which, you know, this culture I would say is unusual for lots of reasons, but, you know, probably two of the, the most unusual parts are that it's, inordinately customer focused you know we talk a lot about how everything we build starts with the customer and then moves backwards from there and if you sat in in our product development meetings dan you would see that it's almost like the customer sitting at the table many times um, in each of these meetings you heard people say well is that what customers really want you know i talked to this customer and they said what was bothering them was this like it's always with a customer lens on and it's easy to, co- to talk about being customer focused and a lot harder to actually execute on that. But I think the company is unusually um, focused on, on customers. And I think the other thing too, is that this is a great place for builders. And we, when we think about our culture, we always want it to be the best place for builders. And I think that just, you know, if, if you're a builder um, and you have the ability to kind of imagine anything that um, uh, that you can possibly imagine and to work on a team that's separable, that gets a chance to, to own their own destiny with, you know, AWS building blocks that allow you to, to, to go faster and not have to do as much of the heavy lifting. And, and then a leadership team that both is willing to say yes to a lot of new ideas and willing to tolerate failure. It's a pretty great place to build. You know, I'm, I'm very struck by your use of the word builders because in my my book, The Prize, in the 19th century, when people were creating the energy industry, they talked about upbuilders, people who made things happen, and you've described that. Well, let's talk about building a little more with the energy industries. You know, there's some companies that don't want to work so much with the energy industries. Where do you see the further opportunities for kind of synergies between tech and energy? Well, you know, I think that almost everybody I know uh, wants wants to kind of snap their fingers 
and have all the energy be 100% renewable energy. And uh, it, it would be, you know, it's what everybody wants. Unfortunately, it's just not the reality right now. There just isn't enough renewable energy in the world to be able to do so, at, at least yet. And I think a lot of companies are working on this. And there, you know, as, as you know, there are a lot of countries in this world that don't have any energy, you know, or adequate access to energy and their quality of life is, is very different than what a lot of ours is. And so that is, you know, it's going to take some time, but I think we're, we're all very committed to trying to help. And I, I think when you, you know, when I hear about companies um, not being willing to work with energy companies, the reality is that energy companies have technology infrastructure, whether they use the cloud or don't use the cloud, they have on-premises technology um, infrastructure that, they, that they're going to use. And so we would much rather try to be a part of the solution and enable them to move much more quickly and to be able to um, be much more energy efficient. You know, if you look at a research that's done and, you know, you can look at the 451 research that was just done, they estimate that um, it's 3.6 times more energy efficient to run technology infrastructure in AWS and the cloud than to run it on premises. You know, and then if you actually add the carbon intensity for the same task, it's 88% more energy efficient to run in AWS than it is on premises. So, We'd rather try to be a part of the solution and help energy companies be more energy efficient with the technology infrastructure they're going to use, but also save money and time so they can spend their innovation cycles working on the renewable projects that allow us to all get to 100% renewable like we want. So the way you're really expressing it is, you know, you're working with them on those goals, both in terms of carbon targets and others, uh, help energy companies meet their ESG goals and uh, meet their climate goals. Yeah, I mean, I, again, um, I don't know. I'm not sure I know any companies that aren't focused on the environment right now and, and who don't understand how important that is to our future. And, you know, I think sometimes, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's such an urgency to get there that, um, you know, there's lots of thrashing and lots of noise about it. But, you know, I think that uh, if, if you're going to run technology infrastructure, it is so much more energy efficient to be able to do so in the cloud than on premises. And that's because we have, you know, much better utilization in the cloud of servers and uh, more efficient power. And, you know, this, think about how much innovation is in our data centers, given the right. scale of what we operate. And so, you know, if you can be 3.6 times more energy efficient with the same workloads you have to run, but in the cloud, that, you know, that changes what your own carbon footprint looks like. And, you know, and I also think, again, a lot of what um, I think is very important for energy companies at this point is um, finding ways to increase the amount of time and energy and, and resource they can spend on renewable projects. And again, the cloud allows you to kind of save um, save those dollars as well as move much more quickly and innovate yeah. And reallocate the dollars. Yeah. Uh, well, let's then turn to what Amazon uh, Amazon Web Services is doing in terms of its own agenda on this. What are your goals in terms of, uh, you use a lot of electric power. What are your goals there? Well, I think if you look at in general, what we're doing as a company, um, you know, we, we, um, we're the co-founders and the first signatory in the climate pledge, which is to be, you know, a, a commitment to be carbon zero by 2040, which is 10 years ahead of the Paris Agreement, which is not simple. It's going to be um, very challenging to do. And uh, we also said we're going to be 100% renewable by 2030, and we're working really hard to try and beat that goal as well. And, you know, I think one of the reasons that um, we 
chose to announce this and, and take this pledge, which is a very aggressive pledge, is that we wanted to try to inspire more companies to invent alongside us and to partner because it's not going to be simple to get there, not just for us, but for lots of other companies. And I think you may have seen that just, um, uh, you know, just in the last uh, um, few days, we've announced this $2 billion fund to fund um, renewable projects that change what, you know, the, the, the speed with which we can all get to carbon zero. And so it's a big priority for the company. It's a big priority for, for AWS and for the rest of Amazon. And, you know, and we're, we're looking for as many partners as we can to help accomplish it. I think uh, the future, of, you know, our, our kids' future and our grandkids' future depend on our, our having that success. And it won't be simple to get there, but we're committed to it. And is the $2 billion fund, is that basically a venture capital fund? It's just a fund that we're going to administer and we're going we're to start receiving proposal and we'll fund the things that we think can have a big impact. Right. And just to add, of course, uh, what you do on renewable electricity is very important because, I mean, you use a lot of electricity, don't you? We do use uh, a, a fair bit of electricity and, um, you know, we've been working on this. We obviously haven't just started working on this, but we've been working on this for several years. And um, as I said, we have a very strong commitment to getting to um, both 100% renewable and carbon zero. Right. So, Andy, you've been, uh, this is the last question here, you've been 23 years in Amazon. It's not the company you joined uh, 23 years ago. Just, you know, what is it like personally to be in a company that is growing so fast and has such an impact in changing, changing the global economy? Well, I feel incredibly lucky <laughs> to be able to work at Amazon. You know, I, when I came in 1997, I came, I took my last final exam in graduate school the first Friday in May in 1997. And I started at Amazon three days later that next Monday. And at the time, Nobody would tell me what team I was going to work on or what my title was going to be or, or um, what my function was going to be. But for whatever reason, it was very important to Amazon that I get there that Monday. And, and I came and I, I really... Do you, do you remember why it was important for you to get there on Monday? We have always had this culture and it was, you know, it's particularly true then, but I think it's really still true in our businesses today. Like we are... Um, we are pursuing land rush opportunities where every day matters. You know, and there's this urgency and this speed and this mission passion that I've never seen in any other company. And so there was just this feeling that what we were doing um, was this incredible opportunity that was moving really quickly with lots of different um, other companies that were going to pursue it as well. And loads of issues customers wanted us to solve that we just needed more people to solve it. And so, you know, I, I, um, I came and, and frankly, um, my then fiance, now wife, um, you know, we agreed that we would, you know, come to Seattle for two to three years and then head back to the East Coast, which is where I'm from. And we lived on the East Coast prior to moving out to Seattle. And we kind of agreed, um, we, we kind of agreed on a napkin and a bar as we were making the decision on where to go. And uh, that was 23 years ago. My, my wife has informed me that the statute of limitations on that napkin has expired. <laughs> but, uh, you know, but I, I feel, um, you know, incredibly lucky to have been part of, of this adventure that we're still in the very early days of being on. And, and you know, I think the reason that um, all of us who've been here for a while are still here and love it is just that um, there is no ceiling to what we think um, is possible. Um, we if we believe that there's a customer experience that is worth fixing and that could be meaningful for the company and that isn't being well served and where we have a differentiated approach, 
we're willing to pursue it and try and fix it, even if it's really different from what the rest of the company has done today. I mean, think about how different AWS is from our retail business. Those were really different businesses. And so if you're somebody who likes to build and if you're somebody who's entrepreneurial and, you know, I'd done my own businesses before I went back to graduate school and came to Amazon uh, and you're somebody who likes focusing on customers, and if you're a consumer of any business, you know what it's like to be treated poorly by companies. If you know if you if that experience has left a dent, and you want to be customer focused, um, you know this is a very unusual place. And so you know it's um, I think if it ever felt like a big company, I would have a different feel about it. But it it never has. It continues to feel like a very entrepreneurial, customer focused, builder oriented company, and. I'm lucky to be here with the team. Well, thank you very much, uh, Andy. This has been a great conversation. Thank you for joining us. Of course. Thank you for having me, Dan. It's always great to have a chance to chat with you. Thank you. Uh, We've been talking with Andy Jassy, who's the CEO of uh, Amazon Web Services, and talking about being a builder. And he's certainly been a builder as he's led uh, Amazon Web Services from an idea to being uh, in itself a, a very huge enterprise and one that we've heard today that is uh, not only uh, changing uh, the all many industries, including the energy industry, changing the global economy, and has played a very important role in terms of dealing with COVID-19, enabling the world to continue to work and to function, and certainly will continue to have uh, enormous impact uh, going forward. So thank you very much for joining us. Discussion. Thanks again for tuning in to another Sierra Week conversation presented by IHS Market. For the complete video series and previous episodes, visit us online at sierraweek.com.